channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we will talk about doing well and doing good. So, Ron, would you kill the fat man? That's the question. <laughs> and let me explain. Let me explain. There's a famous ethics conundrum where a person is standing at a switch for a trolley or a train, and it varies based on the story that's told. And the, the train is going to go straight ahead, and it's going to kill a family of four who happen to be walking along the tracks. You're standing by the switch and have the ability to pull the lever and switch the train so that instead of going straight and killing the family of four that's walking along the tracks, instead it's going to kill this fat guy going on, on the other, on the other set of walking on the other track. And the majority of people would say that, yes, they would, in fact, pull that lever. What's interesting, though, is that if the same scenario were the case and there's a, just a straight track, family of four walking on it, and here comes the train. But in this case, you have to push the guy onto the tracks to stop the train. Would you do it? And most people say, no, they would not. Even though ethically, or in the end, it's the same one guy who's dead and you've saved this family of four. So that's the intro. So would you kill the fat guy, Ron? Ed, it's a great question. And as you know, I teach ethics, and, and we actually use the trolley example. And this is actually called trolleyology. There's kind of a whole, there's a whole book written on this called Would You Kill the Fat Man by a guy named David Edmonds. And he actually lays out 10 different scenarios of this trolley example. But let, let's just stick with these two examples. When we ask that question among thousands of professionals, a good majority of them will pull the lever to save the family. But then when you ask, would you push the fat man? Uh, very few people will do that. And something feels different about those two things, doesn't it? It, it sure does. I, I've always felt when I've, when I've thought about it that one is there's, there's this mechanical thing in between you. Right, so the, the the fact that you're pulling this lever, in a way, cuts you off from the humanity of having to touch the other person, and that that's that was really the difference. But that's not always the case, is it? No, that that is certainly one explanation. The other explanation that some people will tell you is that whole it, it feels different to have to physically touch another human being, mm. and uh, pushing the fat man. Is, is it feels that way. But, but that's one of the scenario changes that they said, well, what if you could pull a lever, open up a, a, a drop door, and the fat man drops out? So you wouldn't have to push him over the bridge. He would drop out mm -hmm. and fall on the track. And people still won't do it. And 
philosophers have a very interesting explanation about this. I want to get your opinion on it. It's called the doctrine of double effect. And it kind of grows out of the just war doctrine of Aquinas, and, and, and it kind of goes back into that spirit. And what it says is there's a difference between an event that is foreseen and an event that is intended. If you think about it, if you pull the lever and send the train off on the second spike just to kill the one person, and let's say that one person moves away in time and saves themselves, isn't that the best possible outcome, right? That would be great because then you'd save both sides of the track and you'd save all five people. But in the fat man example, whether you push him off the bridge or whether you drop the the drawbridge and send him down – you're in he has to die you Mm. are intending for him to die there is no good scenario there he has to die to save the four and that's what philosophers think is is the difference and again it's called the doctrine of double effect right and in in a way it's it's what I think is one of the most incredibly powerful words in certainly the English language and I think it exists in most other languages the word possibility Right. And the the idea that in in the scenario with the switch where the guy is walking, it is possible, however improbable, that the situation resolves itself. So therefore, that's why our minds will go that way and say, yep, okay, it's possible. So let me give that a shot. Right. And and Ed, when I've talked to priests about this or if you hear a, a rabbi talk about this trolley example, they say that you have to leave it up to fate because we are not to play God. So you mm-hmm. don't interfere. You don't really know what's going to happen. And yet I've talked to some Jesuits about it and they said, no, they pulled the lever. <laughs> well, you know, the Jesuits, you got to understand, we're a little different breed, um, current Pope included. You know, they're, they're, I've had, I have personal friends of mine who are Jesuits as, as well. They're, they're, and you'll ne- you can never go to a Catholic Mass with a Jesuit where they don't invite you up on the altar. They get lonely or something. So I think that's the issue. <laughs> what, what's your line about them? Isn't, isn't oh, there? Oh, yeah, the Je- funny- yeah, the Jesuits, the Jesuits were invented to keep the agnostics in the church is, is really... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that has something to do with it. But and and you know, I know this example is kind of far fetched and, and it's very hard to deter you know, we can sit here and cogitate about ethics and what would you do in this situation, but we might act very, very differently in in the heat of the moment. Certainly. Right? Certainly. And, and and there's so that there's that issue. But I do think it's a useful thought experiment because it does raise some very interesting issues about, especially in today's society, how we tend to be utilitarian. Mm-hmm. You know, we will look, we'll say, well, look, we're saving four lives here and only costing one. So, yeah, I'm going to pull the lever. And yet, is that really the right thing to do? Well, exactly. And it, it, I think it also goes to, to, to speak about the whole idea of even organ donorship, let's say, right? And the power of the default value. In, the, in, the, in this ethical case, the default value is where the switch is, right? The fact that, it's going, that, that the train or trolley is going straight, that's the default value. And the fact that, well, should you change that default value, which is what the, you know, the point of the, the rabbis are, is that no, you, you, you don't change fate. Well, it, couldn't the same thing be said of organ donorship? By that logic, could, couldn't we say that, well, we should not be organ donors because that would change fate? Correct. Now, that's a really good point. Uh, and the, the, another twist on the trolleyology example is 
a, a, a you know a homeless person walks into a hospital and the doctor happens to notice that he's a perfect match for five people in the hospital who are going to die unless they get certain organs replaced, would the hospital, would the doctor be justified in killing the one person to save those five other people in the hospital? Wow. When, when people hear it that way, it, it, it really, you know, it, it's just, it, you, you get repulsed. Yeah, right? yeah. By it's that a, vis- a visceral repulsion to it. It, sure. it. it really is. I mean, the trolley thing is one example. Like you said, you're you're you know you're pulling the switch, so you're kind of not involved in in anything. But this is really actively involved, and and is that really what we want doctors to do? So it brings up those types of issues. But uh, that's just another twist on this. But it does point out the flaws in utilitarian thinking that we can just do everything by the numbers. Right. Well, listen, you, all right, that's the second time you've used this phrase, utilitarian. utilitarian. I can't even say it properly. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. I think that we're really using this trolley example as a springboard for the subject of today's show, which is with his ethics in business. And we want to make a clear distinction that we think that we, what we talk about is ethics applied in business as opposed to the idea of business ethics because as you and I talked in preparation for the show we neither one of us think that there's such thing as business ethics there's no qualification there's no special exemption for business under the topic of ethics to begin with right like you see on cable tv when they're debating an issue like stem cell or something you'll see a medical ethicist ethicist or something and i reject that it, it ethics is is like economics. It's the study of human behavior, and it doesn't matter what sphere that takes place in. So whether you work in a bicycle factory or you're a barber or you work for the government, ethics is ethics. It's just about human behavior. So we can't draw these these pointless distinctions between business ethics and medical ethics and all of this. That's not to say that certain professions don't have their own set of ethical issues. They certainly do, but it's still about human behavior, and ultimately we're trying to do the right thing. Right, and so therefore what we're talking about here is the application of ethics in business. Now, my my simplest and my favorite definition of ethics, Ron, just for me personally, is you know what what are you doing when nobody's watching? I mean, and that, that it's a very as I've mentioned, Catholic kind of thing. What are you doing when nobody's watching? Uh, what about you? What do you what do you, you do you think is your your favorite way to think about ethics? Is it that as well? Uh, it, it, that's one of them. Ed, do the right thing even when nobody's watching. Uh, that because that, uh, apparently somebody's always watching, right? I mean, that's kind of the message in that. Uh, I have I have actually a few favorite definitions, if I may, but one is a a Greek statesman by the name of Plenides. Don't even bother to look him up, folks. He's only available on parchment. But he said (laughs) he he actually made the moral case against pedophilia because in 400 BC, it was legal. It was the will of the people. And he stood up and said, you know, is this the right thing? And he tried to make a moral case about it. And he said, to live a moral life, you must do more than is required and less than is allowed. And I love that because to me, Ed, the law is the minimum. It's the floor that society walks on. And it's the morals that are the guardrails. If we had to only be ethical because of laws, because of laws deter us or whatever, uh, we live in a very brutish society because the law is a lagging indicator, 
right? The, the cop shows up after the murder. So I love the idea that you must do more than is required and less than is allowed. I guess I don't want my tombstone to read, here lies Ron Baker, he abided by all the laws. Yeah. I, I, I just don't think that's worthy of, of man. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know that that brings up something that's even a current event, and perhaps we can delve into that in a future segment uh, today. Is the whole idea is you know with the illegal immigration, well, which is redundant by the way. By definition, immigrants are legal, so I should say. Uh, but it, the, the the folks who are coming in illegally, it, there's a, this big call. Well, once we st- we'll stop up the border first. Then we can talk about what the path to citizenship, right? Well, it's kind of the same thing that you're you're talking about here, right? Is, is that if that's the minimum, you're kind of stuck there, right? Right. Yeah. The the other example I like along this the difference between law and and other things is ethics is obedience to the unenforceable, whereas law is obedience to the enforceable. In other words, our ethical guide shouldn't just be the law. Just because something's legal doesn't make it moral. I mean, we can look at slavery. We can look at apartheid. We can look at Nazism. These were all legal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. yet, but they were immoral institutions. And, and probably my other favorite example is morality or definition. Morality is doing what's right regardless of what you're told. And obedience is doing what is told regardless of what is right. And I think of the Nuremberg defense. I was only following orders. There you go. There you go. Well, I think that that sets us up for some pretty exciting uh, segments. So coming up on the Solar Enterprise, we will talk more a little bit about this. In the meantime, please feel free to email us at tsoe at verisage.com. And we also do monitor the hashtag pound TSOE both during the show and when we're not on the air. So feel free at any time to hit pound TSOE on your Twitter and we'll take a look at it after the break. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the soul of enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit verisage.com 
forward slash firm for more details. That's verisage.com forward slash firm. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Epics, Doing Well by Doing Good. And we're talking about Ed, let's talk about why we even need to study ethics. Um, You know, Charles Murray wrote a fascinating book called Human Accomplishments. And he studied amazing human accomplishment from 800 BC to 1950. And he basically came up with 14 meta inventions that really advanced civilization. Things like the scientific method, germ theory. And one of his meta inventions is ethics. And he said, you know, we only study ethics because we have to interact with other people. If, if we were all living on a, a desert island, we would need to study ethics because there'd be nobody to be just to or nobody to be unjust to. And I've always liked that way of thinking about it because if you think in, in a modern economy, how many people, strangers, we interact with, it's overwhelming, Oh yeah, I, I've I've often said that this is the trust is we're swimming in trust, but we don't see it, and of course we only call out the bad stuff that happens. But you know, th- think about this: you 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 and I travel a lot. We go to a foreign city sometimes in, in on a different continent. We show up at a hotel at two o'clock in the morning, and we show them a piece of plastic, and they're like, "Yeah, come on in, no problem. You can stay here a week." <laughs> because I have a piece of plastic. I mean, somebody looking at this from a previous century, I mean, not even a different planet, but a previous century would look at this and say, what is wrong with these people? All, all he did was show him this, you know, card that had his name on it and said, yeah, come on in and stay at my hotel. This is, that's insane. It, it, it is. I mean, one economist pointed out that if you roll the clock back about 100,000 years and look at our ancestors who probably moved around in tribes of no more than 50 or 100 people, if they saw a strange tribe coming towards them, their, their instinct was fight or flight. It wasn't, hey, let's embrace these people or try and sell them something. It was, let's get out of here. They're going to kill us or take our things. And today, like you say, we can be in New York amongst tens of thousands of strangers, even go into a deli at two in the morning and buy food from maybe the owner who isn't uh, of our religion, maybe not of our ethnicity, maybe has totally different politics, maybe his people's been warring with our people for years, and yet we buy food and actually consume it with no thought that he's trying to harm us or poison us. And, and Ed, let's put aside the, the Adam Smith point of how did that bagel get to New York just when you needed it because New York grows nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother, you know, that's kind of like the toaster project we talked about the other week. Uh, but how do these things get there? Yeah, it, through in, in a, uh, an incredible amount of cooperation amongst people who never met. I mean, that's the whole eye pencil idea, right, that we, we did mention. But, you know, 
let's let's get into the delve into this idea of ethics a, a little little bit more, right? You you teach a course on ethics, so set, set it up a little bit for us. What are some different ethical ways of thinking? Yes, uh, you know. It, it, Ethics, the word, is a Greek word, ethos, meaning habit. So ethics is actually a branch of philosophy that tries to develop normative theories about what behavior, individual behavior, is right or wrong. And the four, I I call them the big four, the four schools of thought that we kind of look at are utilitarianism, deontology, Virtue ethics, which is what the Greeks, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle was all about. And then, of course, uh, natural rights, right? So the, the whole rights theorists. And the, the, the fun one to start out with, like we did with the trolley example, is utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And utilitarianism was kind of founded by a guy named Jeremy Bentham. Now, there, there were others like uh, John Stuart Mill and, and, and David Hume and others that, that also believed in utilitarianism. But the thing that strikes me about utilitarianism is they believe that the battle in life is not between good and evil or between reason and passion, but between pleasure and pain. And Bentham was sitting in a coffee house reading a book, and he came across the following line, um, you know, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And that was his eureka moment. He kind of ran out of the coffee house and said, well, you could build a whole ethical framework around this because he thought it's the consequences of your actions that should be judged. And he, d- he actually developed the idea of the util. So economists have taken that, turned it into utility, but he thought that a util was either positive or negative, pain or pleasure. And you could sum up the consequences of your action, and if the pleasure outweighed the pain, then it was an ethical decision that you've made. He actually called this philosophic calculus. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> talk, talk, talk about somebody who's just, you know, taking it to the extreme and trying to measure everything. Holy cow. Absolutely. Holy cow. And, and if you look at this guy, he, you know, he, he was born in 1748. He lived to about 1832. He's a very interesting guy. He was a polymath. He was a true Renaissance man. I mean, he was the first guy to wear cotton underwear. And he was the first guy I think that we know of who jogged on a regular basis because he thought it had salutary health effects. But and he was quite an eclectic thinker. The more I study about him, the more I just admire his mind because mm-hmm. he was a it was a tremendous thinker. But you know, you think, well, what does this dead white guy have to do with anything today? But if you look at like progressive income tax, actually more accurate to say graduated income tax or the death tax, the defenders of that, people like George Soros or, or uh, uh, Bill Gates Senior, Bill Gates' dad, who's a mm-hmm. lawyer by the way, and and even Warren Buffett. They will say, well, look, Bill Gates actually wrote this. If you take a dollar from my son, you're inflicting very little pain. But if you take that same dollar from my son and buy a homeless person a hot meal, then you're creating that much pleasure more than the pain you inflicted on my son. And therefore, it's a moral decision. And that is the number one argument that we hear for the progressive income tax. And the question is, is it flawed? Right. Well, the idea of equality of outcome, right? If if we can't, if it if it doesn't happen naturally, we must reinforce it some way, right? That's that's really what they're looking at, right? And and they're just totally looking kind of at the numbers, it, and it kind of goes back to the hobo example, walking into the hospital with the with the organs. Um, it just seems like utilitarianism can rule out the individual and kind of put everybody into this mass calculus. 
And if the numbers come out right, well, then we're doing the right thing. And that's not always the case. So a full-on utilitarian would, would say, hobo, done. Yeah. Now, I, I, you know, I'd love to ha- have dinner with Jeremy Bentham if I could and ask him some of these questions directly because I, <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't get a read on how he might answer that. I, I, I think he'd have problems with it, but, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure. So, and, and, and look, there are utilitarians that you can find on college campuses to this day guys like Fred Singer at Princeton who say it's, it's quite all right to do an abortion even up to the age of seven if, if the kid's not going to have a good quality of life. Wow. Wow. Uh, all right. So it, w- give me another example. If from a, from a, or, or, so you think, find that most modern ec- economists are utilitarian? Would that be a, a fair statement? I, you know, certainly they lean that way. And, and I'm not saying utilitarianism is always bad. It's, it's a very useful framework to look at the consequences of your action and see if you're, you know, creating more pleasure than right. pain. And that's exactly where I was going down with this because I think in the, in the few minutes before the break here, let's, let's bring this down from this heady subject of ethics to, to the business world, right? So these are things that are very useful business tools. Cost-benefit analysis is certainly a useful business tool. Right, so we're not saying that they, if you buy this, if you think that utilitarianism is evil because of what it implies, based on what we've talked about, that you should never do a cost-benefit analysis. That's a, that would, we would be silly to say that. A- absolutely. In fact, Bentham was kind of the father of the cost-benefit. He just called it pain and pleasure, but we've kind of morphed it in a business setting to cost-benefit. And I think where it can kind of go off the rails at is if you look at the you know the famous Ford example with the Pinto. When they decided not to make the correction, and yet the gas tanks exploded. Now, th- from a calculation standpoint, they were absolutely correct. You know, how many people is this going to kill? And, and, and this is, I think, a lot of economists' argument, uh, especially one we both admire, Stephen Landsberg. He actually put out a thought experiment that was, got a lot of blog comments about if one billion people in the world had a headache, would we be justified in killing one person to alleviate the pain of one billion. And you know how he does. He, he yeah. ran through some calculations and he said, yes. And, <laughs> and <laughs> you, can imagine, you can imagine the comments, well, what if it was you, Steve? Or what if it was your daughter? And he said, look, you're missing my point. We make these decisions every day yep. about the value of human life. I mean, maybe you're going to go get in your car later after the show and you're going to drive somewhere. My guess is you're not going to do a 75-point inspection and make sure your brakes are safe, even though you'll be driving at high speeds in close proximity to other people. No, and, and he, I love the example that he uses. He said, well, if, if we, we, we could eliminate all traffic fatalities simply by p- placing a metal spike on the steering wheel pointed directly at the heart of the driver. Right? He says this would virtually eliminate all, all traffic fatalities except you know, where people had heart attacks anyway and then maybe caused others. But it would also – make commerce come to an absolute screeching halt because you wouldn't do more than two miles an hour. Uh, I, and yeah, and I think he even said and change the speed limits to five miles an hour and install that metal spike. And, and it's like, yeah, we, we would think that that is cost prohibitive, even though we have some 35 or 40,000 traffic fatalities in this country every year. So when people say, Ed, that, oh, if it saves one life, it, 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 it's that's nonsense. It is nonsense, yeah. We say it, but we don't act that way right 
we never do. We, we actually do make these calculations. We'll only put a stoplight in an intersection after two people have been killed. Well, you know? yeah, and that leads to, to what I call precautionary principle thinking, right? Is that we, we, you, must, you must think of absolutely every possible contingency before you make a decision because it might harm one person. And you're held to be held responsible if, it then, if, if it's harm, harming that one person. I mean, it, it's really unfair, it, and it's crazy because if you think about the precautionary principle taken to an extreme, well, then we'd still be sitting in the cave rubbing two rocks together and somebody would be stopping you. trying to You know, you can't create that. That's fire. That could be dangerous. <laughs> it's- Absolutely. Well, after the break, we'll talk more about other forms of ethical thinking. And But please do email us at TSOE at Verisage.com and monitor the hashtag. We do monitor the hashtag pound TSOE. After the word from Sage Software. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. There's a famous story about Leonard Bernstein. He had a favorite piece of graffitum that he once saw, which was Genghis Khan, but Immanuel Kant. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. That's great. <laughs> and uh, that sets up our next segment, which is uh, this guy, Emmanuel Kant. Fascinating dude, Ron. Fascinating guy. He, he was. He's kind of known as the father of deontology, 
which again is another one of these Greek words meaning duty. And Ed, unlike a utilitarian, Kant didn't care about our happiness. He said, forget your happiness, do your duty. So he was very big on duty, and, and he was very big on universals, like no murder, no stealing. He didn't even think it was proper to lie, because he says if we, if we start allowing some lies, even white lies, then you know the, the wheels of society will come to a grinding halt, because we won't know who to trust and who not, and who's telling the truth and who's not. So an, a good example of a Kantian would be Dr. House. Yes, you know, I, I was a huge fan of House, MD, uh, the TV show, and uh, it's because every episode was an ethical dilemma. And House, even though his methods were sometimes completely wrong or, or you know, harmful, abusive. abusive, abusive, yes, that too, inhumane sometimes even, he always did the right thing by his patient. And if you believe a doctor exists to first cause no harm, he did live by that. And he, and he did do his duty, uh, despite how sloppy and messy he sometimes was. He did always do his duty. Right. Well, there's even a couple of episodes where I guess he's challenged by somebody about, you know, unexpurgated truth telling. And then he immediately tells about three or four truths right on the scene that make everybody completely uncomfortable. And they realize, yeah, we don't tell the truth all that often. <laughs> his, you know, his, his, his mantra was everybody lies, right? So he never took anybody's word for it. And, you know, like he said, it was a principle. It was a, it was a heuristic that, that served him that served him quite well. But boy, he would go to the ends of the earth for a patient to save their life. And I, I remember one of his doctors challenging him. He said, oh, yeah, I'm trying to save her life. I'm morally bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, my other favorite was, you know, oh, oh that's right. We, mu- we must follow the process. We, mu- we mustn't let results get in the way <laughs> of process. <laughs> that is a great line. But, you know, the thing that can't, the thing that strikes me about Kant, and I guess it's the most vivid portrayal of this in my mind, is it, uh, I think it was the History Channel that did a documentary on the morning of 9-11 in, in, in New York. And it was, it was a compendium of just people's home videos, like off their cell phones or their video cameras. And they just kind of ran them all together. And there's one scene of a fireman showing up on the scene of the towers after the first one had collapsed. And he's gearing up. You know, he's putting on all of his heavy gear. And, and he's going to run into the tower and try and help these strangers get out. And he glances up at the second tower as it's smoldering. And he says... That's the stairway to heaven. And like you always say, Ed, you know, if, if this building catches on fire, I'll be running out. But we know there'd be hundreds of people running in. But, mm-hmm. you know, Kant would say that's his duty. Good right. for him. And he's he did. Do, he's doing his duty. He did perish, by the way. Yes. And the, and the thought was, you know, nobody asked him to be a fireman. He knew the danger signing up just like you do when you enlist in the military. And I, 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 and, you know, one thing, and I just I was telling you about this book I just got done reading called The Rule of Nobody by Howard Phillips. And he said, you know, the rule of law without human judgment is a tyranny. And just one quick example of doing the right thing, a lifeguard, I believe it was in Florida. I, I don't remember exactly. But he actually went out of his zone on the beach and saved a life. And they fired him because he didn't stay within his zone. 
Well, and, okay, so there was the, the ethical piece of that. Is it the duty to stay in the zone or is it the duty to save the life? Exactly. The duty to do the right thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we had a case down here in, in the Bay Area where a fireman and a cop stood on a beach and watched a man drowned because their life-saving uh, certification had expired Mm-hmm. And their cards weren't up to date. And actually, a bystander went in and tried to save the person, a complete stranger. And a cop and a fireman or paramedic stood on the beach and watched this whole thing and wouldn't go in the water. Kant would be spinning in his grave. Right. Because, well, and I guess the idea was is if they had done this, they, it, it would have been known that they were, their cards had expired and therefore, regardless of the result, would have been open to a lawsuit, etc., Correct. And, you know, I know you fly a lot. I'm sure it's happened to you. You've probably had a medical emergency on board or maybe your plane was diverted once. It's happened to me maybe five or six times. And you know how they always go on and ask, if, is there a medical personnel in the, on the plane, a doctor? Yeah, it's or happened nurse to me twice, or, yeah. And every time, Ed, the, somebody volunteers. And, mm-hmm. and I really have to commend them in, in such a litigious society as ours that they are taking a huge risk. But you know what? They're doing the right thing. They're doing their duty. Well, let's let's talk about this. Let's again try to bring this down to the the business context here. And how how would you see you know, deontology and and uh, playing a day in, in in everyday ethics in the workplace? I mean, because let's face it, most of the people who are listening to this broadcast are not going to be in a situation where they where they're going to have to decide whether to save a life or not. Right. And, 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 you know, most ethical dilemmas are not between right and wrong. We, we kind of already know that difference. You, you probably knew that as a child. At some point, your, your ethical framework is formed. So it's actually the dilemmas that are right versus maybe less right that cause some of the ethical dilemmas and conundrums that we face. And, and another favorite de- definition of mine, and, and I really do love this one, it's, it's, it's from the Josephin Institute, which is a think tank in Southern California. And they say, ethics is about how we meet the challenge of doing the right thing when that will cost more than we want to pay. And, yeah. and they don't just mean a monetary price, Ed. They mean <clears throat> sometimes doing the right thing, which is usually the hardest thing to do, will cost you a friendship. It will cost you a job. It will cost you a marriage. It's not just a monetary price. And, you know, and, that, and that's the application, right? That's, that's the – if you notice a coworker who's, who's fi- figuring out a way to, you know, to, to place orders at the end of the month so that his or her numbers won't be hurting on, on the guys, well, they're just going to come in early next month anyway. It's, it's things like that. And what do you do in those circumstances? Do you, do you tell? Is it, or especially if you're operating in a public company, right? Right, right. You, you know, I always try and think of uh, the Oscar Wilde line, no man is rich enough to buy back his past. And it, it's a reputation of a business or if you're a professional, it's your personal reputation. And you can lose that very, very quick. You know, and I'll tell you, if you lose that, you've lost everything. So no amount of short term gain is worth it. And, and we'll be sure to post this on the website. My favorite example of that is the is the Arthur Anderson website, 
right, which is Anderson.com, S-E-N, and that you, you, you go to, and all that's left is a, 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 of the great Arthur Anderson is a web page, static web page that says Arthur Anderson, and then there's an address for Chicago. And it, it, it might as well, it doesn't say this, but it might as well say, please send all legal correspondence here. And, right. and, and I often wonder what it must have been like for and maybe there's even even some in our audience who were were there at Arthur Anderson when the whole Enron scandal began to completely unravel. What it must have been like to go into the office every day thinking I work for a company that has has really ha- had a significant and serious ethical breach. Y- yeah, it must have been very very painful. And and in fact, there was a billboard campaign that Maker's Mark ran at the time in between the Enron blowing up and, and AA being indicted. So it was that time period where you would pick up the paper every day and, and see, you know, 50 more companies fired Arthur Anderson as their auditor. So the firm was kind of already imploding before the indictment. And the Maker's Mark said, ad said, showed a picture of a Maker's Mark bottle tipping over and it said, disappears faster than the big five counting firm. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. But uh, but do you did you have any friends who survived that Ron who were in Anderson at the time and it, it really must have been devastating to their psyche. It it was I, I didn't personally add but my ex partner Justin who who was an AA person from Houston I might add so he knew some oh, wow. of the people involved on the Arthur Anderson audit and yeah now they all kind of landed in, in other firms and, and things like that. But yeah, there was an, an enormous hit. And yeah, I, I can imagine it must have been devastating. But, you know, the, the same thing happened to Lockheed in the 1970s. I kind of date myself here. But, you know, Lockheed got caught bribing defense officials. I think it was in the Netherlands to, to, to accept their defense contracts. And they got, they got caught for it, and it led to the passage of the Foreign Corrupts Practices Act by Congress, where you couldn't do this. And so Lockheed undertook this enormous study. They brought in economists and psychologists and industrial people, and they said, what makes really smart people? I mean, let's face it. We are talking rocket scientists, literally. Right, and, right. And like <laughs> Lockheed, to, to do these unethical things. And the report is very long, and you can get it online. But the executive summary basically says there's four things. One, pressure to meet organizational goals, objectives or deadlines, lack of resources, peer pressure, and a belief that the decision was in the best in the organization's best interest. And I think those exact same things applied to David Duncan, who was a lead auditor at Arthur Anderson on Enron. And don't they apply to everyone in business and, and the conversations that are had, well, this is in the best interest of the shareholders or the best interest of the firm or the best interest of whomever, right? Or the, let's take it out even to politics and, and this is in the, it's in the best interest of the, of the nation in the Edward Snowden case. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's even, like you said, it's even uh, in more intense pressure to, to fudge or cheat when you see your peers doing it. When somebody within our social group is doing it, then the, it almost becomes overwhelming. Well, when we come back, we will finish our, our show on ethics. We hope you're finding this enjoyable, but please email us at tsoe at verisage.com. Pound TSOE on Twitter, and we do monitor that hashtag both during the show and afterwards as well. And now a word from Sage.
As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Do you work in, lead, or own a professional firm? Do you like what you hear from Ron and Ed on the Soul of Enterprise? Come see them live at the Affinia Manhattan Hotel in New York City on August 14th and 15th at the Sage Firm of the Future Symposium. Ron and Ed will help you and your organization make the transformation to a modern professional knowledge firm, one that is paid for value, not time. Visit Verisage.com forward slash firm for more details. That's Verisage.com forward slash firm. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson, of course, Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. And for those of you who have been listening to the show, we started our show on July 4th of this year and did a, a whole show where we talked about the Declaration of Independence, uh, but we were de- declaring our independence from the tyranny of Taylorism. But really, this the same thing is true. What they were talking about was a rights-based theory, a rights-based theory of ethics. Ron, why don't you introduce us to this concept? This is the third of the great theories, right? Yes, and, and I really like this one, of course, because it basically says that our rights come from our creator. They're not something that's granted to us by government, right? The people created the government in this country and, and I think that's what we mean by American exceptionalism. It was the first time that, you know, we basically the people were telling the government what they could do rather than the other way around. And the thing about rights theories is there's negative rights and positive rights. Sometimes this is referred to as negative obligations and positive obligations. But if you look at our Constitution, if you, and especially the, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, all of our rights that are framed negatively, 
you know, you have a right to free speech, but that doesn't mean I have to pay for your radio show, right? You have a right to privacy, but that doesn't mean I have to buy you Venetian blinds. Or you have a right to a gun, but that doesn't mean I have to supply them. In other words, because you have a right imposes no obligation on anybody else. And that's the negative right. And that's how our documents and our entire system has been framed. Yes, and I think that people misunderstand that because, unfortunately, the the words right negative negative rights it sounds like almost that's a bad thing. Wait a minute, I have negative rights. It's that's yes. got to be that's got to be bad for me, right? <laughs> no, it's 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 actually what the imposition. What what does it cause for another? It, again, by you having something, it does not degrade me having it as well. Right, and 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 the and the way to really bring the contrast because everything's contextual, right, is to compare that negative right to a positive right. And my favorite example of positive rights is the United Nations Declaration of Universal Human Rights, where apparently, Ed, we all have the right to a certain caloric food intake per day, a roof over our head, adequate clothing, medical care, and now even a vacation. But what does that actually mean then, right? That, I mean, that, that if I have a right to caloric intake, well, I can sit on my bum and, and wait for people to serve me? Is that, is that what it means by that right? Yeah, that means that somebody has an obligation to provide that, those calories to you. But what if the doctor thinks you're a jerk and doesn't want to treat you or the carpenter doesn't want to build your home or the employer – oh, by the way, you have the right to a living job, a, a, a job at a living wage. What if the employer doesn't want to hire you? In other words, it, it, it puts an obligation on somebody to provide these things and that's why it's called a positive obligation. When you start thinking about that, you start thinking, hmm, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. Well, and then that has to – we have to then – we'd be – wrong of us not to bring up the idea of, of Ayn Rand here, who one of my favorite points of argument with people, although I'm not a, a, an objectivist, would, would be to say, by what standard or by whose standard are you going to judge this? Right. Because she argued that there was no such entity as a society, right? So only individuals could be moral. And yeah, I think she does lay out a pretty compelling case for natural rights. Although I I don't see what she sees at the top of the mountain is really where we where we diverge paths, <laughs> right, right, and and then the other set of ethics that that we talk about the other school of thought I call them schools of thought it's probably the wrong phrase but is virtue ethics and these were the Greeks you know the Greeks thought that everything revolved around character and you know they thought character was destiny and character and virtue was its own reward. And kind of uh, like utilitarians, they thought that we were a bundle of virtues and vices and that the sum total of our virtues and vices developed and formed our character. So if you've ever used that phrase, I can't believe they did that. That's totally out of character for them. Mm. That's, that's a very virtue ethics way of, of looking at things. And is there no doubt that if you're an HR person in a company – uh, you know, I would rather hire somebody with good character and weak skills than the opposite. Yes, I, and I, I've always felt that it's it's really about about hiring for behaviors or what I like to call behaviors rather than particular skill. skills. Skills skills are relatively easy to educate folks on. It's it, th- those things. I mean, no, not high level technical skills, but I'm going to pre presuppose some aptitude for that, right? But if there are certain skills that people need to acquire, that's way easier to acquire than 
are they going to be an ethical person? Right. And, and I guess, you know, to, to bring this all back, uh, like we always try to do to a business setting, you know, business is a serious moral enterprise. You, you do have to do right by strangers, i.e. customers, and you do have to serve them and you do have to put their interests before your own. I mean, when I'm sitting on a plane at 11 o'clock at night flying to some little podunk city, I'm thinking to myself, this pilot doesn't know me. He doesn't care about me. He may be a different religion or whatever. And yet he's flying me and he's, he's enabling me to earn a living. And yeah, he's doing it out of his own self-interest. But isn't that a good thing? Because he's serving me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and well, the, the good news is about pilots, too, is they don't want to die either, which I always, I always feel very comforting in that. And, I, and I'm constantly surprised by people around me who, you know, we, we have to pull back into whatever airport, weather's bad, whatever malfunction, we don't want to risk it. The people who complain. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> no, no. Let's, I'm okay. This guy thinks that there might be something wrong with the brakes. Yeah, that's okay. Let's get off the plane. Thanks. I'm going to take his word for it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I guess it just it, you know if again this hundred thousand year time span from our ancestors and tribes to today, we have all these strangers out there willing and able to service us and and add more value than than what we pay them, and I think that's a pretty good way to organize a society. Yes, which is our case on, on this idea of the soul of enterprise is that b- business has a moral component. It's got a, a vocational component. It's a calling, and it's and it's about paying it forward. We, we've we've talked a lot about that. This idea that it's looking forward, and uh, I know we've mentioned this before, but George Gilder's idea that that profit is an index of your of your altruism, I think, comes to bear really in this whole conversation about ethics. Because let's face it, all these four different schools of ethics or whatever it was that we wanted to, to call them. Uh, th- we're going to take pieces pieces from them and apply them to, to our lives. But the reality is, is that as, as business people, we have a higher calling uh, to our customers. And it's, it's a good calling. It's a decent calling. It's a moral calling. And if there's anything that, that you and I are, are about, it's about bringing that word out to other people because we, we just see it pr- persecuted left and right. I agree, and I do think it's a serious moral enterprise, and I just wish that people would stop thinking about it as being greedy. You know, greed greed has been around forever. It's one of the seven daily sins. Business has nothing to do with greed. You're not going to succeed in the long run if you're greedy. No, everybody's greedy. Everybody else is greedy. It's always the other guy, right? It's never me. (laughs) Right, right. Greed's kind of a constant, so it doesn't really explain much. So with that, Ed, we'll, uh, I think we'll wrap this discussion up, and we look forward to hearing from you folks. If you want to email us at tsoe at verisage.com, uh, be happy to take your emails and uh, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about the show, possible topics you'd like to hear. And, Ed, I look forward to uh, talking to you next week. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create greater freedom for businesses to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. 
In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE. See you in 167 hours. <laughs>